So timing is everything. Let me give you an example from the 1780s in Vienna. There was a hugely gifted composer, and he was creating symphonies and operas for the Habsburg royal court. His name was Antonio Salieri. His work was simply amazing, a virtuoso, a natural. But then there was a new guy in town, an upstart Austrian by the name of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. And the sheer genius of Mozart overwhelmed the prospect of Salieri, not just during his lifetime, but even his future fame in history. At any other time in history, Salieri would have been royalty, even more famous. But with Mozart in the room, he was just second fiddle. This phenomenon doesn't just happen with the upper crust musicians of society. It happens in all professions. It happens in every generation. Timing is everything. In the 1960s, there were two amazing children's authors who transformed children's books forever. They, they changed children's books from being watered-down adult fare or preachy do-goody tidbits or something like that. They made books fun and fantastic for children. Now, we all know the ruler of that universe, Ted Giesel, a.k.a. Dr. Seuss. His silly, poetic stories made reading fun and fabulous to everybody. And today, everybody knows Dr. Seuss like everybody knows the name Mozart. Or they should. But if you read children's books in the 1960s or you continue to read them today... Uh, there's another author whose name is not well known, but his work is. P.D. Eastman was a contemporary of Dr. Seuss. And his books and their books together were, were marketed in stores all over. And you will find P.D. Eastman's books just as commonly as you will find Dr. Seuss's books even today. You might not know his name, but I know you know his books like Go Dog Go or Redfish or one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish. But perhaps the most beloved of Eastman's books is this one, Are You My Mother? Are You My Mother is the story of a baby bird who hatches out of his egg just as his mom has flown off to get food for her young hatchling. It begins to search for its mother, the baby tumbles out of the nest and finds itself on the ground looking for its mother. It encounters a kitten, a hen, a dog, a cow, even an old car. All the while asking each of them, are you my mother? The baby bird doesn't know his mother, but the baby bird knows he needs his mother. He keeps searching, shouting at a boat in a river, shouting at a plane overhead, Finally, the baby bird finds itself in the teeth of a big power shovel, and it's hoisted into the air. It quickly figures out that this is not its mother, but it does help the baby bird back into its nest, just as his true mother returns with a meal for her baby chick. The baby bird immediately recognizes her and declares, you are my mother. Why don't we recognize the mothers and the grandmothers in our room this morning?
You are our mothers. And today we are finishing our message series called Check Your Connection, a series on prayer. And I want to look at the longest prayer of Jesus. Now, surely there were other prayers that were quite long. We just don't know the words of them. For example, when Jesus would retreat to the wilderness for a day, surely he prayed for hours and hours and hours. But we don't have the words of that because none of the disciples were with him. Jesus was alone. There's another time where he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, but the disciples kept falling asleep. And so although we have a couple words from those prayers, we don't have most of the prayer So it's in John 17, where John actually does stay awake. It's in John 17, where we encounter the longest prayer of Jesus that we knew. The context is important. Jesus has just washed his disciples' feet. He has just fed them his final supper. And that's all in John 13. And then he spends three straight chapters teaching his disciples some last life lessons before he has to leave them, before his crucifixion. For example, it's in those sections, in chapters 14, 15, and 16, where he says to his disciples, I am the way and the truth and the life. He also teaches them, I am the vine and you are my branches. And then it's in John 17, right before the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going there so that the soldiers can find him and arrest him. But just before that, he prays this long prayer in John 17. Now, what would you pray right before you were going to be arrested? What would you pray for if you knew religious leaders wanted to crucify you? Uh, What if you were going to die? What would you pray about? The good news is we do know what Jesus prayed. This isn't the last prayer he prayed. Of course, he prayed on the cross. He prayed, Father, forgive them. He also prayed, Father, to you I commit my spirit. Jesus spent the whole time on the cross praying and praying and praying. So it's not the last prayer that he prayed, but it is kind of a final chance to check his connection with his Father before everything goes down. So what does he pray for? because I know exactly what I would be praying for if I thought people wanted to kill me. I would pray, of course, for an Iron Man suit. Because with an Iron Man suit, if you tried to crucify my hands, I've got a little surprise for you in my hands. There's a lot that can go right if you have an Iron Man suit. That's what I'd be praying for. But that's not what Jesus prayed for. Not at all. He prays for three things, three things. His first prayer is for himself. He prays for his mission. He prays for his mission to save the world, that the Father would use this moment on the cross to glorify the Son, the Savior of the world. Jesus says to the Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you, for you granted him authority over all people, so that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. 
Jesus is praying in that moment for the salvation of the world. He is giving his life as a ransom for many. He is giving his blood for the salvation of all. And yes, people throughout generations have rejected that salvation. They have rejected Christ. But Jesus is dying for all the sins of the world. Yours, mine included. This is the free gift of salvation. And Jesus is saying, I want it to be so glorified, Father. I don't want anything to detour us from this mission because this is the reason I've come. And at any point that we turn religion or turn Christianity into religion with all its rules and its rituals and its traditions, and we lose sight of this, then we've lost the only thing that matters. What Jesus actually came to do. And so he prays for that mission. Number two, he prays for his disciples. He prays for his disciples. In this verse, he says, I'm coming to you now, Father, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I am going to be crucified, I will be risen, and I will come to you, and we will rule over the creation. But at the same time, I don't want my disciples to ever think that I abandoned them. I want my joy to be within them. I want them to know me to feel my presence with them, and I want my joy to be within them. Jesus is praying for his disciples that even after he leaves, they become the body of Christ, which is such an interesting way to refer to the church in the New Testament, but they do it over and over and over again. The body of Christ is still in this world because Jesus' joy and his love and his forgiveness and his grace has come into his disciples, and they're spreading it everywhere. They're spreading that joy everywhere. And then a second verse, as Jesus is praying for his disciples, this is verse 15. He says, my prayer is that you take them out of the, not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Like, he's not asking his disciples to leave the world, to abandon it, to protect themselves, or something like that. No, 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 no. Jesus is empowering them to be in the world, to be as witnesses to the world. And there's protection that they need. And Jesus is also praying for their boldness with the gospel, that they would take it to the very ends of the earth. What an amazing prayer. Jesus prays for his mission, and he prays for his disciples. And then thirdly, he prays for us. Jesus prays for the future church. And he says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me because of their message, because of their preaching, because of their love. I pray for them also. Have you ever thought that Jesus, right before he's arrested and crucified, Jesus was praying for you? Jesus was praying for the future church, that the future church would be beautiful and that it would honor him and that it would be the body of Christ, the bride of Christ right here in the world. As if Jesus never left because he didn't. And then in verse 21, he brings it around just like one more step. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. 
I also pray for those who believe in them, who believe in me through their message, so that they might be brought to complete unity. What does Jesus want for us? He wants for us to be unified. And what happens when the church is unified? What happens when we are unified as a Christian body to make a difference in the world? What happens when we become the body of Christ together? He says, then the world's going to know that you sent me. It's going to see my love for them. The world's going to know that you sent me. See, our unity changes the world. In fact, our unity makes Jesus visible to others. And so our unity and love for each other has potential to change eternal life. Now, unity and uniformity are not the same thing. We're not all going to have the same opinions and preferences, just like we don't all like the, the same ice cream flavors. I could tell you what the best one is, but you're likely to disagree with me. We all have those preferences. We all have those differences of opinion. God has made us all differently, and that's beautiful in the body of Christ as long as we are unified in the mission of Christ. And when a church is unified in the mission of Christ, they become the kind of church where found people find people, where the saved people serve other people where they don't see the church as something for themselves because they realize, I am the church. We're the church. We become the missionaries of God. It's not an inward-focused group, but instead it is an outward-focused people on mission for Jesus, making an eternal difference. A few years ago, I had the chance to visit Ethiopia on behalf of the Lutheran church here in America. And I noticed that in the churches in Ethiopia, and you would see pictures like this of two, they really honored and talked a lot about Claudia Procula. She was a saint in the church over there, Claudia Procula. Well, who was she? She was the wife of Pontius Pilate. They honored and loved Claudia Procula. And it wasn't just because she went to her husband and said, have nothing to do with this man. Don't hurt this man. This man is innocent. I have received it in a dream. It is not just because of that moment, but it's because of all the days that happened after their, uh, cr the crucifixion of Jesus. The legend says in Ethiopia that Pilate and his wife retired in northern Africa. And because of her faith in Jesus, Pilate began to follow his, his wife. And they began to plant churches in the area. They became great witnesses to the gospel in northern Africa. Now, you can't be an inward-focused church if you're recognizing the Pilates as saints of the church. Back in 2007, the Ethiopian Lutheran Church the Ethiopian Lutheran Church in 2007 had 2.3 million members. Who would have known so many Lutherans in Ethiopia? In 2007, the LCMS here in America, our church body, also had 2.3 million members, 2.3 million Lutheran Christians. Today, our church body is now below 1.9 million members. And the church in Ethiopia has grown to over 10 
million members. In fact, they add 500,000 people, 500,000 people who want to be on mission for Jesus every single year. The Lutheran Church in Ethiopia is the largest Lutheran church by far of any country in the world. What once was in Germany and started in Germany with a Reformation and a church that took the Protestant gospel, the free good news of Jesus, to the ends of the cities and the ends of their states and their country, then came to America and the same thing happened. And now it's happening in Ethiopia. This is church on mission. Why are they growing? Because they understand what the church is for. They understand that the church is meant to send the gospel to the ends of the earth. The church is always on mission. In England, they celebrate Mother's Day on the fourth Sunday in Lent. Instead of, for us, on the second Sunday of May, they actually look at the fourth Sunday in Lent. And in its medieval roots, Mother's Day was originally called Mothering Sunday. It was Mothering Sunday. Mothering Sunday refers to both our physical and our spiritual mothers. We celebrate both our birth mother and our baptismal mother. So on Mothering Sunday, you pay tribute to your birth mom and you pay pilgrimage to your baptismal mother. You return to your family of origin and you go to your home church with your mother and you thank God for both. Um, You return to your mother church, the church that birthed you. You visit mother. I think that's what Jesus is praying that the church can be. He calls the church the bride of Christ. It's a mother, and it's supposed to give birth to disciples. So many people in the world, they're they're like baby birds looking around for their mother. Who's going to care for me? Who will accept me? They're looking for a mother. They're looking for an identity. Imagine if the baby bird didn't meet a kitten in the story, but instead it met an old mountain lion. And it asked, are you my mother? Nope, but I'm sure hungry. Nope. I mean, that would be the story. And I think that's what happens in the world. Everybody's looking for their mother. They're looking for their identity. They're looking to know who they are. And they'll go to wherever they're accepted. And so often the world wants to devour them, wants to take them in. And I think far too often churches in our country are much more like country clubs, like they have secret passwords. The Pharisees loved churches like that. The the Pharisees started churches like that. That was their version of what faith in God should be. And Jesus categorically rejected it. He rejected any notion that the church is not for people, especially lost people, broken people, broken people like us. So he prays, Jesus prays, uh, just before he's arrested, before he's crucified, He's given his life as a ransom for you and me, the gift of salvation. He finishes the greatest prayer ever, and he prays for us. He prays that Messiah would be unified with God and would be unified with each other. And that when people see us, they would see Mother Church. They would find a church home. 
And he prays that our complete unity would bring more people in the kingdom because when they see us, they also see the love of Jesus in us. And let me promise you one last thing. A church that's like that is irresistible. It's irresistible. I want to invite uh, Greg to come up. Uh, We're going to sing a song and have a prayer time with you. Uh, Many of you know that the Psalms are the prayer book. They are the hymn book of the Jewish people. And they serve such a purpose, but I think a lot of times like we turn to the Psalms and we look at them like any other text, but they're not meant to be that way. They're meant to be sung. In fact, if you even look in the original Hebrew, you can see where it's talking about how the song is supposed to be played and, and how the notes are supposed to be played. And so what we've done is we've taken one Psalm, Psalm 19, and we've reset it to music. And we want to sing over you, and we want to pray over you, and we want to pray these words of Psalm 19 so that God can truly transform us.